I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on Sunday, October 9, 1977, in Honolulu, Hawaii. And since that time, I have not used or abused alcohol or any other substance that allows me to take a trip without leaving my chair. <laughs> and last October 9th, I celebrated 24 years of continuous sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> My home group is the Saturday morning principal studies group in San Ramon, California, where our steps and traditions study. We study the steps one at a time using the big book, and then we study the traditions one at a time using the 12 and 12. And we have about 40 chairs in our room, and uh, when we study the steps, almost all of those chairs are filled. When we study the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, all of those chairs are filled, and we have people sitting on the floor to talk about the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe that happens in my home group because we talk about the traditions as another set of steps. I, my experience has been that the steps help me live with me and the traditions help me live with you. The steps help me from committing suicide and the traditions help me from committing homicide. <laughs> and I have a sponsor. My sponsor is Peg M. of Bellevue, Nebraska. And um, Peg has been my sponsor since my 19th AA birthday. She was a present to myself. And... Um, I believe, and, and you may come to understand why I say this as I share my story this evening, that Peg has indeed saved my life. I um, I want to do something real quickly. Um, I am always, I, I always feel so privileged to be uh, invited to participate in uh, any AA function, to be of service in any way. And, and um, I'm always kind of astounded when people call up and ask me to come out of town. I always want to say, don't you have somebody in Dayton that can do that? Um, because as, as Sterling said earlier, you know, um, the people that are standing up here, we're really grateful to be of service. We don't get paid to do that. For, for those of you that are new or may not know, we don't get paid to come here and do this. Um, we, but we don't do it because we're great people. <laughs> uh, we do it because we've been taught about the difference between commitment and convenience. And, um, and I'm very grateful to, to be asked to do this. Um, and I'm always really overwhelmed when I have the opportunity to speak after after a recovery countdown. It just overwhelms me to see the recovery in the room. I, I love it when there are old timers and newcomers, and um, and when we honor those people. Um, one of the things that I've learned in, in recovery is, and I've learned it even more in these past few years, is about sponsorship. And I'm going to talk a lot about that this evening. And one of the reasons I'm going to talk about it so much is because I have a lot of sponsorship family here this evening. And even though I live in California, um, some of my sponsees are here. Uh, one of my sister's sponsees is here. And I would like you to see my sponsorship family. So I'm going to ask, first of all, my sister's sponsee to stand up. And now I'm going to ask, and to stay standing, I'm going to ask all of the women that I sponsor to stand up. And I'm going to ask, I have the mother of one of my sponsees is in the program. I'm going to ask her to stand up. Now, and I'd, li- ask, I'd like to ask her sponsor to stand up. And of the women standing, if you are sponsored by them, I would like you to stand up. Or if- If your sponsor is standing, I'd like you to stand up. (laughs) If there's anyone else that their sponsor is standing, I don't know if there is. I'd like you to stand up. No. This is my sponsorship family. And I'm 2,000 miles from home, and I have people who care about me and are here to support me. And that's what Alcoholics, has given, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me, because i got to tell you, when I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous on October 9, 1977, nobody was standing up for me. I want to thank all of you for being here. Thank you.
as the other speakers have said, I want to thank Pat for for inviting me. And where did he go? Where is he? He's here somewhere. He's <laughs> and, I, and staying after me. I didn't get as many phone calls as the others got, but I got emails. <laughs> I'd open my I'd open my mailbox, and there's another message from Pat. <laughs> The nice thing with email is that you don't have to read it right away. <laughs> it can kind of age for a while. <laughs> but I'm really grateful. To, I was grateful to get the phone call and to be asked to come here and speak. And, and for those of you who had anything to do with that, I want to thank you for that. Um, it's been a great committee, and this committee puts on a great conference. It's been a great day, and it's been a very full day. And um, I feel really honored and privileged to have shared the podium with the speakers that you had today. It was what a great lineup of speakers you guys put together. And, and um, so I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I, um, I grew up, uh, even though I live in California now, I, I grew up in Michigan. And um, I grew up in a family that, um, as someone else said, I was there. So that's what made it dysfunctional. Um, my family was probably... a really good family. It's the only one I know. Um, I grew up with a younger brother and an older sister, and I grew up always knowing there was something different about me. Um, I went to school knowing that, you know, I, I always looked at other people, and I always compared my insides to your outsides, and I always came up short. I knew that you guys just knew how to do stuff that I didn't know how to do. Um, I didn't know how to, you know, I didn't know how people knew how to apply to colleges or how to how to do SATs, or how to how to get on different things, how to get involved in different things in school. I um, at one point I, I went out for cheerleading because I always love to be the center of attention, and you'll figure that out after I've talked about myself for a while here. Um, I get to talk about my favorite topic. Me. Um, you thought I was going to say AA, didn't you? Uh, <laughs> well, some of you didn't. Um, I always loved to be the center of attention, so I figured if I went out for cheerleading that that, that would do it. Um, I problem was I didn't like some of the things you got to do to be a cheerleader, like tumbling and aerobics and acrobatics and all of that kind of stuff. So I didn't make the team. Um, always one to love or resentment, I went out for sports and made them cheer for me. I was on every team that women could participate in when I was in school, and that was many years ago. Um, more years than I can remember now. I, um, I graduated from high school, and uh, I got engaged at my senior prom. And um, in, the next, uh, in the next year, I broke that engagement five times. Should have told me something. The last time he gave me the ring back, he said, if you walk out on me once more, um, if you give me the ring back once more, I'm going to walk out on you and you'll never see me again. And I was 18 years old from the Midwest. I didn't fit in anywhere. I couldn't be self-supporting through my own contributions. Um, so I figured, well, I better marry this man, otherwise I'll be an old maid. And at 18 years old in Michigan, that was a big deal. i got to tell you, I turn 51 next month and I don't really care. Um, <laughs> old maid is not bad. Um, I actually kind of like it. Um, we got married a month after my 19th birthday, and, and, and I didn't drink in high school. It might have helped, but I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> I, um, we went on our honeymoon to New York, and the drinking age in Michigan was 21, and uh, the drinking age in New York was 18. We went to, to uh, New York on our honeymoon, and we went to a cocktail lounge. Didn't go to a bar. We went to a lounge, cocktail lounge. And it was dark, and it was smoky, and it had those red leather banquets. And and um, and I used to love the movies of the 30s and 40s, you know, with Carol Lombard and Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and all of those actresses and and the drama and how they looked. And, and they'd hold a drink in their hand with the little pinky out, and they had a cigarette holder and they'd take a sip and they were gorgeous and I sat in this cocktail lounge in New York and I took a sip and I looked how I looked I felt how they looked it was magic now the next morning when I'm puking my guts out in the toilet I don't know that I thought of Piper Laurie or Lee Remick in the days of wine and roses I um and I know that reference just went over the bunch of a whole lot of people's heads we were talking at dinner, Sterling, this morning, Sterling explained to some of you who may not know what a record is. <laughs> I 
Days of Wine and Roses. It's available on videotape rentage. Um, and DVD. <laughs> I, um, and that was the beginning of my drinking career, but I didn't know it at the time. We came back to Michigan from our honeymoon, and my husband and I worked together. We'd go to work together, and um, we'd drive home. We'd stop at a little party store on the way home, and he'd pick up a six-pack of beer, and, and we'd go home, and he'd drink, and, and we'd fight, and I'd cry, and he'd pass out. And uh, a six-pack of beer stopped working for him, so he needed two six-packs of beer. And I didn't know about Al-Anon. And uh, he'd pick up two six-packs of beer, and we'd go home, and he'd drink, and I, we'd fight, and I'd cry, and he'd pass out. When he got to three six-packs of beer, I realized my marriage wasn't working, and I needed to do something to fix it. And uh, so what I decided that I could either have a baby or I could drink with my husband. And I'm grateful that I picked alcohol over bringing a baby into what was to be the hell of my life. Um, I didn't like beer, and all you could pick up at this little party store that we stopped at was beer or wine. And so I drank wine. And um, I live in, in um, the Livermore Valley in California. It's a, a beautiful valley in the foothills of the Sierras. Um, we have several beautiful wineries in our valley. Um, I'm told that they have wonderful California wines from these wineries. I'd love to tell you that I drank some of those fine California wines. I'd love to tell you that I drank some nice French wines. I drank Ripple. <laughs> Other Ripple drinkers? <laughs> okay, now those are the people that those of you who don't know about Ripple go to to ask. They don't, you know, those of us that drank Ripple, we got sober, Ripple went out of business. I, that's power, you know. I, um, but I drank Ripple. I didn't necessarily like Ripple, but Ripple took me where I needed to go. Uh, the problem with Ripple used to come in flavors, and each flavor had a different color label. And um, and I would buy a bottle of each different flavor, and I would go home, and I had a tub, and I poured them all into the tub, and I'd mix them up, and then I'd pour them back into the bottle. I had my own private label, Rainbow Ripple. <laughs> And that's where my drinking started, and where my drinking took me was um, drinking in Skid Row bars, supporting my habit the way women who drink in those kinds of bars find it necessary to support their habit. If I had to pay for more than one drink, I went to another bar. I came to behind those bars with my hair matted to my face from my own puke, having wet and messed myself. I wasn't a pretty drunk, and I wasn't a nice drunk. I was a desperate drunk. Um... When I went to um, when I went to parties, um, if it was bring your own bottle, I always t I always took a bottle. It was always in one of those nice brown liquor store bags that you know that you can twist around the neck of the bottle. Um, I always got there and I always put my bottle way in the back. And when I was leaving, I always went into the kitchen when there was no one around and I took my bottle from in the back and I took the top off of it because it was empty and I filled it with the dregs from whatever was left. And that was that would take me through the next couple days. And it didn't matter what I was mixing in that bottle. It took me where I needed to go. It did what I need alcohol to do for me. Um, if I had a party in my home, it wasn't unusual for me the next morning to drink warm beer with cigarette butts in it. I was an alcoholic, and I needed alcohol. Um, I, I did whatever it took to support that habit, and um, that's what I brought to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous on Sunday, October 9, 1977. Now, I didn't live on Skid Row. I just drank there, and I drank there because that's where I fit. I didn't feel like I fit with the people in those nice bars. Um, I didn't feel like – I didn't know how – you know, booze did a lot of things for me. I um, It took me a lot of places. Um, it made me a lot of things. When I was uh, when I was drinking in those bars, uh, and again these are Skid Row bars, I drank with um, pilots and astronauts and surgeons. I was frequently those things. Um, I was never a nurse. I was a doctor. I was never a flight attendant. I was a pilot. The problem I had, and someone else referred to it, is that I was a blackout drinker. So I have no idea what I told people when I was in blackouts. Um, I I frequently came to in places where I didn't know where I was, where I didn't recognize the ceiling, 
I didn't know who I was with or how I'd been, how I'd gotten there or how long I'd been there. And, um, and I'd gotten to a place where I couldn't look at myself in the mirror anymore. Um, and I wore contact lenses. Uh, it's hard to do, but you get, you get used to it. I still don't need a mirror to put contact lenses in. Um, and I, um, I got to that place that our big book talks about, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I had, uh, my first marriage had ended. I'd left my first husband after he threw me through the living room window for the second time. I'd gone back to him after the first time. And um, I left him and I moved in with my sister. Now, our book says, and as other speakers have said, we don't name anyone an alcoholic. Um, but if it walks like a duck and drinks like a duck, I, um, I had been married to a duck. I, um, <laughs> I moved in with my sister, who's probably a duck. I, uh, I lived with her for a while, and then I moved in with uh, a woman that I worked with, who's probably a duck. Um, and then I met this guy, and actually I was on a date with his best friend, and he stopped by our table at the bar, and so I left with him. <laughs> And uh, we went out, and we went out drinking, and um, and I was still an underage drinker. I changed drinks in every bar we went to because someone else was paying for it, so I was trying out all this different stuff. And um, I passed out in the last bar we were in, and I fell out of the booth, and he had to pick me up and carry me out. And as we're driving home, I came to puking, and which always makes a great impression on a first date. Um and he said he thought there was something wrong with my drinking. And I thought he just didn't know how to have a good time. I was not one of those alcoholics that tossed my cookies. I mean, I, I don't know about any of you, but I was a puker. I was a blackout drinker. Um, I did what it took to support that habit. That man married me. Now, you know, he wasn't an alcoholic. He probably could have benefited from the program of Al-Anon, no doubt. Um, but he married me, and, and I married him basically for the same reason I'd married my first husband. I did not know how to be self-supporting through my own contributions. By this time, I was working for the Michigan State Police, and I um, <laughs> cops are, are good people to drink with um, because we take care of our own. Um, you, you probably won't well in those days. I don't know how it is now. You probably don't get a DUI if you're drinking with cops. Um, but I, was, I had been working for the Michigan State Police, and I had lost—I had just lost my job as a result of my drinking. And um, so I, this man called me up and asked me out to dinner that night. And I said, "Why don't we get married?" And he said, "Sure, why don't we do that?" And so we did. And that was my second marriage, and and we were married. Um, He—it was—it was kind of—I didn't realize until after we were married that he had some kind of unreasonable expectations of me. Um, he thought I should stop dating just because we'd gotten married. <laughs> I, I thought that that was just, you know, that's asking a bit much. I, um, I, I'd gotten another job, and my boss expected me to show up every day. And, um, and he expected me to stay there all day once I got there. <laughs> and um, I had a dog that... You know, you got to walk those puppies. And and they expect to be fed every day. I, it was just, it was too much for me to handle. And um, I realized that what I needed to do was I needed to um, get a different look on things, get a different view on things. And so uh, I talked to my husband about it, and he suggested that we move. He suggested, it wasn't you know, my idea, I just, but he suggested that we move, and he thought that maybe if we moved to Hawaii, that that would be a good place to take care of my drinking. And as it turns out, it was a great place to take care of my drinking. It worked um, for about a week. Um, and then I found the kinds of bars that I liked. Now, the bars I liked um, were dark. They always had a jukebox in the, in the back with sad country music on it. Because if there was sad country music on a jukebox, I could get somebody to pay for my booze. It cost me a quarter for a drink because I could put a quarter in the jukebox. I could play sad country songs. I could sit at the bar. I could put my head down. I could get those eyes. <laughs> and somebody would come up and they'd put their arm around me and say, There, there, sweetie, let me buy you a drink. <laughs> and whatever it took to pay for that, I was willing to pay it. Um, I... um. 
My husband kept talk, talking to me about my drinking. I told him that he was silly. I tried a lot of things that alcoholics try. I tried all of the things that it talks about in Chapter 3. I tried changing my drinks. I tried drinking only at home. My husband was more than willing to have a stocked bar at home. I tried drinking never at home. Um, I tried getting more physical exercise. I joined the baseball team. Um, I tried uh, all of the things. I, um, I, As I said, I'd been a blackout drinker. I came to one day, and um, my car was up against a telephone pole. I have no idea if I pulled it off or if I ran off the road. I don't know how I got there. Um, I came to another time. I was, again, I was a drinker and a driver. Um, I drank and went places. I just don't know where I went because I was in a blackout. I came out of a blackout driving down Alamoana Boulevard, and the radio was on, and Elvis was dead. It was August of 1977. And, um, and I was at the lowest I'd ever been. I, um, my husband fixed dinner one evening, and um, we had some kind of an argument over a bottle of wine. Imagine that. Um, he had opened a bottle of wine. It was a nice bottle of wine. I knew this because it had a cork. Um, <laughs> I didn't usually drink wine that had corks unless I needed the fiber. Because um, I couldn't figure out how to get corks out of bottles. I, I could never get the, uh, the things, the wine, screw things to work. And so I just pound those things in. And, um, and um, he had opened a nice bottle of wine, and we had an argument, and I picked up the bottle of wine, and I chugged it, and he got upset with me because I hadn't allowed it to breathe. I didn't know about breathing wine. You know, Ripple never needed to breathe. And uh, I picked up my plate, and I walked out of the living room into the dining room, and, and there was a small step between the living room and the dining room, and I missed it. And I fell, and my plate flew, and one of the dogs grabbed the, the steak, and the other dog grabbed the potato, and they ran off. And, and I'm there on the ground, and my husband looked at me, and, and I, I looked up at him, and I said, don't say it. And he said, don't say what? And I said that if I hadn't have had that drink, I chugged a bottle of wine. If I hadn't had that drink, I wouldn't have done that. And he looked at me with the look that alcoholics have seen, um, the looks that our loved ones give us. Um, and he said, if you hadn't have, he wouldn't have. And he stepped over me and um, he went into the dining room and sat down and had his dinner. And, um, and I got up and I went back into the kitchen to fix myself another plate of food and he walked in behind me. He said, you're an alcoholic. He said, I don't know if I can continue to live with you. And, um, you know, I've been called a lot of things in those bars. And my husband had called me a lot of things in arguments. But I'd never been called an alcoholic. And I knew what an alcoholic was because I had some alcoholism in my family, not in my immediate family, but um, I had aunts and uncles that suffered from our disease. I'd had an uncle who died of a wet brain in the hospital where my mother worked. And, and I'd watched my Uncle Paul die. My grandfather had died as a direct result of being intoxicated. And I knew my grandfather was an alcoholic. And I knew I wasn't that. But all I could hear in my mind was those words. And my husband went out of town on business the next day. And, and this baseball team that I had joined, um, we had a, a game. And I went to the game. And um, I missed a real easy field. I was a shortstop, and I missed this real easy field. And, and my coach pulled me out of the game very unceremoniously, and I questioned whether his mother knew who his father was. I didn't do it quite that way. And um, But I've been taught the same thing Dave has been taught. I don't use that language from the podium. And um, and I got in my car, and I took off. And <clears throat> as I'm pulling out of Kapilani Park, I kept thinking if I could – hit that little rock wall along Diamond Head Road hard enough, I could kind of put my car over the side and I could go down the cliffs and I could die. And that's what I wanted to do. I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't live like this anymore. I couldn't do this anymore. I couldn't show up anymore. I couldn't look in the mirror anymore. I couldn't stand who I was anymore. I didn't want to do this anymore. I just couldn't do life. And I didn't know how not to do it. I didn't know what else to do. But I hadn't had a drink that morning. And I knew that if I aimed my car towards that wall, that at the last minute I'd pick my foot up off the accelerator and I wouldn't hit the wall hard enough and I wouldn't die. I'd wake up in some hospital room somewhere and I'd be in pain. And I was in pain. I didn't need any more pain. And I went home to fix the drink so that I could kill myself. And, and I got the, bottle, the bottles out and I started to fix myself a drink and I went 
to the back of the house, and I picked up the phone, and I called information, and I asked for the phone number for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and a woman answered the phone. And I didn't like women when I got here, because you were competition for the people that were supporting my habit. I knew what I would do to get the person that was buying your booze to buy mine. And I knew what you would do to get the person that was buying my booze to buy yours. And this woman answered the phone, so I told her that I wanted to know something about Alcoholics Anonymous for a friend of mine that I thought might have a problem. And she said, oh, maybe you'd like to go to a meeting. (laughs) And I said, I didn't want to go to a meeting. Thank you very much. Maybe she could just send me some literature. I could do a correspondence course. (laughs) And she said, oh, sweetie, we don't send out literature. But if you go to a meeting, you can get some literature and you can meet some women and get some phone numbers. How special. And I said, "Um, well, I don't think my friend would want to do that, but maybe you could just tell me about Alcoholics Anonymous, and then I'll tell my friend about Alcoholics Anonymous. And so she started talking about Alcoholics Anonymous, but as most of you know, it's hard to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous without talking about God. Um, I interrupted her and explained to her that I don't believe in God. She said, oh, does your friend believe in God? Now, I let her tell me where there was a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I wouldn't go to one in my own neighborhood. I didn't want my neighbors seeing me going into one of those AA meetings. My neighbors had called the EMTs on me about a month before because I was passed out on my front lawn and they thought I was dead. But I couldn't let them see me go into an AA meeting, for God's sake. My anonymity, you know. So... She told me about this meeting at the Alamoana YMCA, and um, and I went to that meeting. Um, she told me to go in and go up to the first woman I saw and tell her I was a newcomer. I walked up that night, and there were a bunch of people outside drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and laughing and joking. I thought, that's the party I should be at. I didn't know. And I walked through these, this crowd of people, and I walked into the meeting room, and, and it was a little bit before the meeting, and there was no one in the room. The chairs were set up. There was no one there. Everyone was outside drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes. Except in the back by the coffee pots, there was one person, a woman. And I walked up to her, and before I could say anything, I started crying. And she looked at me and she said, oh, you're a newcomer. (laughs) And she took me outside, and she introduced me to the women of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the women of Alcoholics Anonymous gave me their phone numbers. And some of the men gave me their phone numbers, and the women took them away from me. They sat me right up front uh, between Blanche and, and Connie and uh, Alan Kay, secretary at the meeting, and, and I'm sitting there crying. Oh, my God, I'm not going to win. My life is over. I'll never have fun again. I was having fun. And I sat there crying, and Alan started the meeting, and he says, Do we have any newcomers here tonight? It's not to embarrass you, just so we can get to know you. And Blanche kind of nudged me in the ribs and my hand went up and and I'm crying and Alan says would you like to give us <laughs> and I cried through my whole first I've cried through my whole first 24 years <laughs> I um but I cried through my whole first meeting and, and I left as soon as the meeting was over oh we stood up at the end to say the Lord's Prayer and someone else said this tonight I knew it was a cult You're praying at the beginning. You're praying at the end. I figured I show up next week and you're going to give me a tambourine and tell me where to report to the airport. I mean, that's that's just it. I knew. and But, you know, I had no place else to go. I didn't go to a meeting from that Sunday till the following Sunday. I didn't hear 90 meetings in 90 days. I didn't. They had given me their numbers. They had given me. Meeting schedules. I had a, every pamphlet that had because I love pamphlets. I'd been in every pamphlet that I, that was in the rack. I went back the following Sunday. I walked in. The only person in the room was the coffee maker, Blanche. She comes up to me and says, "Perry, I'm great to see you. How many meetings did you get to this week?" I said, "Sunday." I was here on Sunday. She said, but "During the week, how many meetings did you go to during the week?" Sunday. <laughs> I was here on Sunday. She said. Um, no. She went over to the, the pamphlet rack, and she picked up a meeting schedule, and she marked some stuff on it. She took me outside to Renee, and she said to Renee, she said, I've marked the meetings where I'll meet Penny. Will you mark the meetings where you'll meet Penny? And Renee circled some things, and Renee took me over to Connie C. And she said to Connie, she said, Blanche and I have marked the meetings where we'll meet Penny. Will you mark the meetings where you'll meet Penny? 
And I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because I thought it would be rude not to show up. Um, those of you who have heard me speak know that I always share that story when I speak because when I introduced myself this evening, I shared with you that last October I celebrated 24 years of continuous sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. In September, Blanche celebrated 24 years of continuous sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in August, Connie celebrated 24 years of continuous sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you do the math, those women took that action with 30 and 60 days of sobriety. I don't... Now, what that means to me tonight, that's more important to me tonight than it's ever been in my whole sobriety. Because I'm really grateful that there, there's a fellow here with 35 years and, and Ruth's here with 28 years and that there's, there's people with more sobriety than me and less sobriety than me. What that means to me is that no matter how long you're sober, no matter what 12-step program you're participating in, as a matter of fact, you have a message to carry to me. You have a message to carry to other alcoholics and to other Alanons. You have a message, if you're one of the people that got one of those beautiful key rings, you have a message to carry to me because I need to know it hasn't gotten any better out there. It doesn't matter what Zima tastes like. It hasn't gotten any better out there. And I need to know those things because my brain, the farther I'm away from a drink, the reason I keep coming to meetings is to hear what happens to people who don't come to meetings, but I also need to hear what it's still like out there because just because I know my story doesn't mean that's the story I'd get if I picked up a drink. I, I do not believe that if I picked up a drink, I would die. I believe I am one of those alcoholics that would pick up a drink and live a very long, very painful death. I just, um, I, and I, I don't believe that I'd come back to Alcoholics Anonymous because like, like Sterling said, you know, I have a big mouth. I love to be the center of attention. And, you know, and I have an ego the size of Texas. I, um, I started going to meetings, and I would love to stand here and tell you that because those women took those actions, I got right into Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't do that. Um, I, uh, in a, at a couple of weeks sober, I had a woman appoint herself as my sponsor. Um, I didn't really know what a sponsor was. Uh, this woman appointed herself as my sponsor, explained to me that a sponsor is someone that I can share things with, that I can share my deeper, deepest, darkest secret with. Um, I had this deep, dark secret that I knew that if you knew, you wouldn't let me stay here. That if you knew the things I had done or the person I was, that you would ask me to leave. That you would not sit next to me in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, and I don't know why I took the risk of sharing that with this person, but I did. And um, and what happened was she shared it at group level. She laughed about it, and she attributed it to me. And what that did for me was I knew I couldn't trust you guys. I knew there was nothing I could tell you because you were going to share it. And um, and what that's taught me in the years I've been sober is how important it is to keep a confidence. And um, no matter how insignificant I may think it is, unless someone has given me permission to share with others what they've shared with me, it is not my place to share it. And um, because we never know what's important to another person. Uh, today, those secrets aren't important to me. Uh, it's who I am and it's what I am. But I, that's not who it was when I had a couple weeks sober. And we're so fragile when we're that new. And we're looking for any excuse. And I don't know how I didn't drink over those things. I, um, there were a couple of times that I decided I was going to get drunk. I'll tell you, one of the things that I decided I was going to get drunk over, I was going to meetings and I was hearing a lot of people raise their hands and coming back from slips. And I don't know why that was at that particular time, except that's probably what I was listening for. And I heard all these people coming, raising their hands, saying, oh, well, when I had my last slip and when I came back from this slip and the first slip I had, and I kept thinking, well, I can have a slip. And now I'll just come back to AA. Now, newcomers think that way. All right, that's how my brain goes. Because I'm, I'm looking at people that are sitting in meetings sober. Well, they're saying they're sober. And they had a slip. So I can drink and come to AA. That's what my brain is saying. Well, 
So I had this plan because I came to my first AA meeting. Nobody came in 1270. Nobody came and got me and took me to my first meeting. I went to my first meeting by myself. Now, that's not because I'm so great. It's because I wouldn't stay on the line longer than three minutes because I thought this woman was tracing the call. And um, so I was going to take <laughs> – I envisioned this big this panel truck with a red AA on the side that picked me up. I figured I'd have a dead drunk on top or something. Um, so I figured that if I had a slip, I could call AA, and I'd get to have a 12-step call. And they'd come and they'd pick me up and they'd take me to detox, because I didn't go to detox before. And I figured that would be an experience I should not miss. And then after detox, maybe I could go to treatment, because I met people who'd gone to treatment, and they had all this information that they got while they were in treatment. So maybe I should go to treatment. That sounded like the easier, softer way. And then after I went to treatment, maybe I could go to a halfway house. And there was a halfway house in Honolulu at the time called um, the Bells of St. Francis, Halfway House for Women. And the women who graduated from St. Francis were called the Bells, the Bells of St. Francis. And I wanted to be a bell. <laughs> so I started planning a slip because I looked at all these people coming back from slips. And I sat at coffee one night across from a guy named Harry Lake. And Harry was, I mean, he'd been sober three days less than God. He was at least 13 years sober at the time. And I know I didn't mean to say this loud enough for Harry to hear because I was scared of Harry. And, but I said out loud, well, when I have my slip. And Harry looked at me and said, when you what? I said, when I have my slip. Because I have a real problem with what they said and what I heard. But what I remember is Harry reaching across the table, grabbing me and pulling me and saying, who told you you were going to live? And in the next month, three people that I'd gotten sober with picked up a drink and died. And I do not believe that I was scared into sobriety, but what I believe happened for me is that God intervened and that I heard a message the way I needed to hear a message. And what I know today is that not everybody who comes to Alcoholics Anonymous stays sober and not everybody who has a slip gets to come back. What I know today is that every alcoholic eventually takes their last drink. And some of us get our sobriety date on a birthday cake and some of us get it on a tombstone. And I want mine on a birthday cake. I want to be able to come and talk about my last drink. I, um, I have buried alcoholics who have thought that they could pick up a drink. Um, I, um, I went to meetings, and I thought I was different, and I thought you wouldn't understand, and I couldn't share things about myself, and if you know what I was really like. And, and um, I know today that none of those things are true, but, I, but at the time, I thought they were. I thought if you really knew what I was like. you. And what happened for me is that I started keeping secrets and lies. And what I'm here to share with you tonight, if you hear nothing else from me tonight, please hear about secrets and lies. Because what I know today is that secrets and lies will kill us. It doesn't matter how long we're sober. I, um, I started keeping secrets and lies, and, and um, I was going to meetings, and I came to the one place where I could ask for help, and I said, no thanks. I'm fine. And um, at 18 months of sobriety, I was in the same place I'd been on October 9th, 1977. I was suicidal and I was homicidal, and I didn't know how to do this deal, and Alcoholics Anonymous wasn't working for me. I had, I had subscribed to the sponsor program called Sponsor Du Jour. Um, I, I, uh, if you ever talked to me on the phone, you'd been my sponsor at that period of time. Um, I finally found the perfect sponsor. Um, I got her as a service commitment. A friend, friends of mine were moving back to the mainland, and she had been their service commitment, and I took it over. I had to go to the hospital and visit her and read to her. And um, as I read to her, and, and then I talked with her, talk to her a little bit, and I realized she was the perfect sponsor for me because she was in a coma. <laughs> um, and I decided that that was a good way to work the steps with this sponsor in a coma. Um, so I... Um, I, you know, I didn't think I really needed all the steps. I, um, I had, I'd heard the steps read in every meeting, of course, and, and I didn't think all of them really applied to me because I didn't think I was powerless or my, that my life had been unmanageable. And it wasn't really that I didn't believe in God. I was really hiding from God. Um, and so I didn't need to do the next two steps. And, and, but, you know, that fourth step, now I know a lot of people are afraid of that fourth step, but, but I heard somebody talk about those three columns on page 65, and I looked them up in my book. Whenever anybody would quote the book in a meeting, I'd go home and I'd look it up because I knew you wanted to be accurate. And if you weren't, I'd come back and tell you <laughs> at group level. And um, 
But somebody had talked about those three columns on page 65 and how they helped them with their four steps. So I looked it up, and I realized that, that I could do the four step. I didn't need to do the first three, but I could do the fourth one. Because right above that, in the paragraph right above that, a, a couple words caught my eye. It says grudge list. I could do a grudge list. Cause, and the three columns, who I'm resentful at and what they've done to me and what it affects. So I had no problems coming up with a list of people that I was resentful at and what they did to me. And then what it affects is really just my issues, you know. And I had issues. And so I, I did this four-step. I wrote out those three columns. Now, if you're doing the steps without a sponsor or with a sponsor in a coma, you might not turn the page. So you won't see this sentence that says, to conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. I didn't see that. I just, that, that's how far I got. And so I did those three columns, and then I took a trip. I went to Michigan to visit my family, and I went to an AA meeting, and I looked around the room, and I picked out a likely hymn, and I asked him if he'd hear my fifth step, and he said, sure, why don't we go to my place? And so we went and did my fifth step, and um, I don't think he'd ever done a fifth step. I'm not sure he'd ever heard a fifth step. I'm not sure he was sober when he heard my fifth step. Uh, he thought I did a great fifth step and told me I should go home and do six and seven. Well, I didn't think I really needed six and seven um, because I didn't think, you know, I hadn't had any character defects or shortcomings on my four-step list. Um, everyone else had, though. And um, so I didn't need eight, uh, but nine. I looked at nine, and I realized that if any of those people ever got sober, they sure owed me amends. And... Um, and then I went to meetings and I listened to people talk about 10, 11, and 12 being the maintenance steps, so I was maintaining. And um, that's where I was at 18 months of sobriety. Um, and I wondered why I was suicidal. I, um, I decided I was going to kill myself on a Saturday, and I, I went to a meeting on Friday night. And I didn't go to a meeting so that somebody would say something that would save my life. I went to a meeting that Friday night um, because I was angry at you, and I wanted you all to feel really bad when you opened the paper on Sunday morning and read on the front page that I was dead. Um, illusions of grandeur. I, um, I really believed that the way I was going to kill myself was going to sh show up on the front page of the Sunday paper, and uh, I was going to do it on Sunday, uh, Saturday. Um, Friday night I went to a meeting, and after the meeting I was stomping out of the room because no one had talked to me, and because I'd stood in the back with that angry look we're all capable of getting. And... Um, on my way out to my car, a guy grabbed me and pushed me up against my car. And he said, you know, Penny, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to die. He didn't tell me I was going to get drunk or I was going to get loaded. He told me I was going to die. And um, and I looked at him at the way an alcoholic woman knows how to look at an alcoholic man. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And I cried all the way home, and I didn't kill myself the next day just to prove that he was wrong. And... Um, Shortly after that, God put a woman in my life that believed that recovery from the disease of alcoholism is based on the 12 steps as they're outlined in our big book. And um, she, I made the mistake of introducing her to my sponsor in a coma. <laughs> she suggested I might want to get a sponsor that was actively going to meetings. She helped me find one. Uh, she helped me find a sponsor that believed that recovery from the disease of alcoholism is based on the 12 steps as they're outlined in our big book. And, and I got a sponsor that started taking me through the steps of AA in our big book. She took me through uh, Chapter 3 for the first step because on the first page of Chapter 3 it says um, that we had to, to admit to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. And then she took me into Chapter 4 for the second step, and, and I told her I didn't believe in God. And she said, that's okay. Can you believe that I believe in God? And um, she gave me permission to use her God. For a long time, I prayed to other people's gods. Um, and then she took me into Chapter 5 for the third and fourth step, and into Chapter 6 for 5 through 11, and then into Chapter 7 for Chapter for Step 12. And, and I got sober at a time and in a place where we had the opportunity to do a lot of 12-step calls. And, and, um, and I wound up surrounded by people that are active in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and that got me into the middle of the lifeboat. And um, as Sterling said earlier today, you know, it's hard to fall overboard when you're in the middle of the boat. And, um, and at two and a half years of sobriety, I, um, I had a job offer on the mainland, and I took it, and I moved to Washington, D.C., and I lived there for a while, tra traveled on business a lot, and my business brought me to California in uh, 86. And, and after I'd been out there about six months, I decided to ask for relocation. And my family relocated, or my business relocated me, and then they downsized me. <laughs> and um, 
But before that happened, I'd um, I'd been single for a long time. I'd come home shortly after I'd gotten sober from that uh, with that, and I was still married to that second husband. I came home and I found a note from him that he was gone out of town on business. He'd be back in a week, and we need to talk. That's 24 years ago. He's not home yet. Um, so I've been single for a long time in AA, and um, and I've been active in the program. Um, I came out to California, and um, I started going to meetings, and, and um, I got the home group that I have today. And, and there were a lot of old-timers that, that went to that home group at that time. Most of them have moved to other parts of the country now. But um, there were great people that went to that meeting, and, and I loved it because we talked about the steps and the traditions. We talked about putting the traditions into practice in my life, what it means to have unity in my meeting and in my home and in my job, and what's an ultimate authority in my home and in my meeting and in my job, and how do we take a group conscience, and how am I part of a team, and what does anonymity mean in those places? And I got to see that the traditions are just another set of steps for me, and, and as I said earlier, they help me to live with you. Um, and I, uh, I was going to that meeting, and, and there was a very nice man going to that meeting, and he asked me out, and we went out, and he was a nice guy, and he was sober a long time, and he asked me to marry him, and I said yes, and and um, I married my, my third husband, and um, and we were very visible as an AA couple. We did a lot of AA functions together. He's very active in the in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and just a really nice guy. He's got a great story. He got sober in a penitentiary, and I'm an ex-cop. We are people who would not normally mix. <laughs> um and AA was good. And I became what my friend Doug calls a rim runner. I was just kind of running around the outside rim of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd been sober a while, and, and um, I was complacent. I had a step study and a tradition study for a home group. And, and, um, and every time we talked about the fifth step, something happened for me, because we'd get to that fifth step, and um, inevitably somebody would talk about Take it to the grave stuff, about stuff that you that when you do your fifth step that you decide, well, you know, I don't really need to tell them that. I, nobody needs to know that. And every time we did a fifth step, I felt uncomfortable in that meeting. And what happened for me was I started planning trips out of town the weekend we were doing a fifth step. And, um, and I didn't see that either. For my 19th birthday, I, I had a sponsor. I wasn't using a sponsor. I wasn't really sponsored. Um, I had started doing a meeting in my home for my sponsees once a month, and we were going through the steps in the book, and we were on the fourth step, and I asked each of them to, I didn't know what was going to happen when I started that meeting and when we started studying the steps, but when we got to the fourth step, I asked each of my sponsees to write a fourth step, and and um, and I told them that I'd do it too, and, and the weekend before we met again, um, I was at a retreat in Southern California with Gloria D., and um, and I figured, well, since the meeting's on Monday, I better do my four-step because I told my sponsees that I would. And so I started writing my four-step, and I went down to breakfast, and I asked Gloria if, if she would hear my fifth-step that day. And um, and I realized that um, I had a lot of stuff that I needed to talk to a sponsor about, but a lot of it was about a sponsor. And so I did my fifth-step with Gloria, and I came home, and I was talking to my friend Polly P., who spoke here for you last year. And I was talking to Polly that evening, and... I told her what was going on and, and that I thought I needed a sponsor and I didn't know anybody in the area that I that I felt comfortable with. And she said, well, how about Peg M? And I said, well, you know, Peg lives in Bellevue and Nebraska and I don't really want an out-of-town sponsor. And later that evening, I was talking with my friend Sharon B. And Sharon said, uh, you know, if anything ever happened to Clancy, I'd get Peg Martin as my sponsor. And I said, yeah, but Peg's in Nebraska and I don't really want an out-of-town sponsor. And Next day, I was talking to my friend Jill, and she said, you know, Peg's really a great sponsor. And I thought, well, that's three. And um, so I called Peg and asked her if she'd sponsor me. And she gave me an assignment and asked me to call her back in two days. And I called her back two days later and told her the results of my assignment and asked her if she'd sponsor me. And she told me she would. She told me what she expects of her sponsees. And for out-of-town sponsees, she expects, first of all, that I'm willing to be sponsored. She expects that I go to at least three meetings a week. I generally go to more. I have to call her at least once a week. I call her on Thursday mornings at 8.30. I am on the phone to my sponsor on Thursdays at 8.30. Um, I have to have a service commitment. 
Um, I have to be active in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have to be sponsoring other people. And I see some of my sponsees are sitting here nodding and looking at their sponsees going, see, see, that's why I tell you you have to do that. And um, the other thing that happened when I asked Peg to be my sponsor, it was my 19th birthday the day I asked her that. And um, I said, Peg, I'm 19 years sober and I'm low maintenance. If anybody ever asks you to be their sponsor and says they're low maintenance, run as fast as you can. I, uh, for the next uh, 11 months, I called Peg every Thursday at 8.30. Hi, Peg, I'm fine. Yep, see you in October. Hi, Peg, yeah, I'm fine. Oh, yeah, this is going on or that's going on. Yep, but, yeah, I can handle it. Okay, yep, I'll do that. Hang up the phone. Um, in October. October of 1997, um, all of that stuff that I hadn't talked about, all of those secrets and lies came home to roost. And um, I had done some very unprincipled things. I had taken some actions that I um, was ashamed of. I didn't think I could talk about, anybody, uh, talk about it with anybody because what would people think? Um, what would happen if people found out? I hurt people that never deserved to be hurt. And um, and I finally called Peg and talked to her about it, and she told me what I had to do. And she said I needed to write a four-step. And, and um, she told me I needed to work the steps. What I heard her say was write a four-step. Now, I normally live on six and seven. And, you know, I tried doing the steps cafeteria style when I was new, and it didn't work when I was new. i got to tell you, it doesn't work when you're an old-timer either. Um because I tried going from six and seven to four, and I couldn't get my four-step written. And um, I was driving to the airport on a Friday afternoon, and I was talking to God, and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't write this four-step. And um, I realized that it was because I hadn't done the first three steps. So I did the first three steps on the way to the airport. My God has a great sense of humor. I, I got to uh, San Francisco Airport, and my flight had been delayed an hour and a half. I'm sitting in the gate area with my carry-on luggage, and all I have in my carry-on luggage is a notebook, a pen, a big book, and a deck of cards, and I put the deck of cards away. And I started writing my four-step, and I wrote my four-step all the way from San Francisco to Okoboji, Iowa. And I went to a conference in Okoboji, Iowa, and then I got on the plane and came home, and I, I'm really grateful there was no one sitting next to me on those flights, because I just wrote. And I, I would love to tell you that, you know, I looked at myself right away, and, and I didn't do that. For a long time, it was about him, and it was about her, and it was about them, and it was about you, and it was about everybody but me. And I finally, an hour and a half out of San Francisco, wrote the sentence, it's not about them, it's about me. And um, i got to get rid of secrets and lies. And I'm not going to live if I don't talk to somebody about this. And I called Peg when I got home, and I did a fifth step. And um, she was in the Bay Area a couple weeks later, and I finished it up. And... and um, and I had to go to Glenn, and I had to tell him that I had to leave the marriage. And um, my husband is my favorite ex-husband is an incredible man because he completely understood and he knew what was going on. And um, he said, "I know you do. What can I do to help you?" And what happened was when I talked to Peg about what was going to happen as a result of what I'd done, she told me that um, no matter what happened that I would never talk bad about him, that if I needed to talk bad about Glenn, that I would call her. I would not talk with a sponsee about it. I would not talk in meetings about it. I would not talk with my friends about it. I would talk with my sponsor about it. And uh, I don't know what direction Glenn got from his sponsor, but I know both Glenn and his sponsor, and I know that Glenn did not talk bad about me to anybody either. And um, as a result of that, um, Glenn and I are great friends today. I spoke with him this evening. He says hello and sends his greetings. He especially says hello to you, Dave. And um, they're brother sponsees. I um, I left my marriage, and uh, I had to make some major changes in my life. And um, what happened when I was going through that is Peg gave me a passage out of the book to read, and it's, it's in the chapter, The Family Afterward, which we don't read very often. It's on page 124, and it says, Cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death and misery for them. What's happened for me is that um, I, uh, a friend of Glenn's, one of Glenn's sponsees, talked to me a couple months after this all happened, about four or five months, and, 
he had heard me speak recently in a, just before that in a conference, and he said, you know, you're not talking about that stuff from the podium, and I'm concerned about you. Because I think if you don't talk about it from the podium, you're going to die. He said, but don't take my word for it. You've got to talk to your sponsor about it. I can't tell you those things. He said, so I think you should talk to Peg. And I called Peg, and I knew she was going to say, no, you can't talk about that from the podium. Peg didn't say that. <laughs> and, um, and what happened for me is that I, don't, I really don't know what kind of a message I carry from up here. And I certainly don't know what kind of a message, a message I carry for newcomers. I really don't, I'm not here to scare you. But what I really want to do is talk to the people that are in middle sobriety. Because I want to tell you that I know I'm not unique. You know, this is a, this is the new fourth edition of the big book. And I go to a big book meeting on Friday nights. And all of us, most of us have the new fourth edition. And so we sit there and we read and we highlight and we underline and we share. And what I've noticed, all of us starting with new books at the same time, is we all came here thinking we're so different. We're all highlighting the same thing in the book. We're all making notes in the margins. We're all underlining stuff that we've already highlighted. And I thought I was different. And what I am is I'm just like you. I'm selfish, self-centered, self-seeking. I want to be liked. I don't want you to know that I'm not perfect. And I know I'm not perfect, and I know you're not perfect. I just don't want you to point it out to me. I'm afraid that you're not going to like me. And I know that there are people here that aren't going to like me. I'm afraid that you're going to find out that I had secrets and lies. That there was stuff going on that I was afraid for people to find out. And what I know is I'm not unique. And I know that because of people who come up and talk to me after I speak. And I'm here to tell you that if you're sitting out there and you think you don't have anybody to talk to, if there's something going on, and you're afraid to talk to anybody here about it, because what will people think? Please talk to me. I'll give you my card. You can call me. You can email me. Certainly, first I would recommend that you try and talk to your sponsor about it. But I know that in a room this size, there's someone that is scared to death of what's going to happen if people find out what I did or what I've been doing or what I haven't shared. And you're the one I'm talking to. Because secrets and lies can kill us, and I know that because I was on the edge of a lifeboat. I was slipping over, and I was going to slide under, and nobody was going to notice. When I came to that dark night of the soul at 20 years of sobriety, I thought I was going to have to leave AA. What's happened for me is that I had a sponsor who loved me. I had sponsees who loved me. I had sister sponsees who loved me, who called and emailed who had no clue what was going on and told me they cared about me. What Alcoholics Anonymous has given me is people who love me and they don't even have to. And I didn't have to go to that place to find that out. That's just the path that I took. You don't have to go there. What I know today is that I am so blessed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. This really isn't the message that I want to carry. I really want to have this nice, cheery message that people are going to go home and say, God, isn't she great? Um, What I know is that that Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life. Sponsorship has saved my life, both being sponsored and being a sponsor. Um, People have called me, and and I think that, that Sterling referred to this also, you know, right about the time that I'd think, oh, I'm not going to do this deal anymore. The phone would ring. And stupid me, I'd pick it up. Maria talked about it when she was sharing this morning. You know, I think I'll just knife myself in the gut, but maybe I'll answer the phone first. <laughs> you know? And it's somebody on the other line who needs, who needs to be, somebody to be of service. And I'm of service today. Um, I do H&I. I, I go into both our, uh, the women's penitentiary and, and our women's jail. And... and um, And I don't do that because I'm a good person. I do that because it makes me feel good, uh, because I come out of there on a high. Um, I'm of service in my home group. I'm the literature chairperson. Um, I have service commitments today. You know, um, I'm the H&I liaison to our inner group. And if you want to learn about the traditions, get involved in inner group. Um, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I am in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. 
My favorite ex-husband is one of my dearest friends today. We talk regularly. Um, I have a good life today, and uh, and it's because of AA. It's because of sponsors. It's because of sponsorship. It's because of people like you. Um, I um, I am so grateful to be here, and I want to close this uh, passage. used to be on page 312 in the book. In the fourth edition, it's on page 276. The last 24 years of my life have been rich and meaningful. I've had my share of problems, heartaches, and disappointments because that is life. But also I have known a great deal of joy and a peace that is the handmaiden of an inner freedom. I have a wealth of friends and with my AA friends an unusual quality of fellowship. For to these people I am truly related. First through mutual pain and despair and later through mutual objectives and newfound faith and hope. And as the years go by working together, sharing our experiences with one another and also sharing a mutual trust, understanding and love without strings, without obligation, we acquire relationships that are unique and priceless. There is no more aloneness with that awful ache so deep in the heart of every alcoholic that nothing before could ever reach it. That ache is gone and never need return again. Now there is a sense of belonging, of being wanted and needed and loved. In return for a bottle and a hangover, I have been given the keys of the kingdom. Thank you.